Welcome to Imaginary Histories. 2018 will mark 170 years since the incredible year of 1848. In honor of that anniversary, I'll be talking about many of the events that happened that year. Many, but not all, because there's too many events packed into 1848 to cover in one podcast episode. For example, I'm not going to talk in detail about the revolutions that broke out all over Europe. There were attempts by the people of France, Italy, Denmark, Hungary, Poland, Belgium, and elsewhere to cast off the rule of monarchical families and aristocratic imperial regimes. Those attempts at revolution were mostly unsuccessful, and it would be another 70 years before that old European order was finally wiped away by the Armageddon of the Great War. I recommend Mike Duncan's podcast, Revolutions, if you want to delve into those 1848 uprisings. Instead, I'm going to talk about other events that seem to foreshadow the times we live in now, or events where the consequences have rippled down to us. A quick note on the music in this episode, the earliest recorded sound dates from about 1860, so the best I could do was to find later recordings of songs from that earlier era, so most of the music you'll hear dates from the 1890s and 1900s with a few recordings dating from the 1920s, and definitely a few anachronisms, for which I hope you'll forgive me. So without further ado, Signs and Portents from the Incredible Year, 1848. James W. Marshall had come to the land of California in 1845, when it was still part of Mexico. He was originally from New Jersey, but had been making his way westward since his early 20s. In July 1845, he arrived at an agricultural settlement named Sutter's Fort, founded, owned, and run by John Sutter, a German-Swiss immigrant farmer and pioneer who was in his 40s. With Sutter's help, James Marshall became a small farmer himself, until the Mexican-American War started in May 1846, and he left to join the California Battalion of John C. Fremont it will probably be the subject of a future episode himself. By the time Marshall returned to his farm in 1847, all his cattle was gone, he was broke, and he'd lost his land. So he went back to work with John Sutter, partnering with him to oversee the construction of a new sawmill. Sutter's fort was on the American River. Marshall decided to build the sawmill 40 miles upstream at a place called Coloma. Marshall was an experienced carpenter, who built the water-powered mill himself with the help of local American Indians. Also working with Marshall were local members of the Church of Latter-day Saints. They had also fought in the Mexican War and were saving money to travel to the Great Salt Lake and the Utah Territory to join the newly founded Mormon community there. One of these Mormon veterans, a man named Henry Bigler, made an entry in his diary on January 24, 1848, where he noted that James Marshall had discovered gold. Marshall had been looking in the channel of water below the mill when he noticed something shining in the channel bed. He reached into the water and plucked out a couple of sparkling stones. After a couple of tests, he concluded that they must be gold nuggets. Marshall took a couple more pieces to test further and allowed his crew to look for more once they were done with their work. When Marshall showed his gold to John Sutter, Sutter was not exactly thrilled. He knew that if word got out about the gold, the resulting rush would mean chaos. But by March, rumors of the gold had reached San Francisco, which at that time only had about a thousand residents. Word reached the East Coast by mid-August. By then, a stream of Californians had already arrived in the gold fields of the North, 
in the Sierra Nevada mountains. As he feared, John Sutter's workers deserted him to hunt for gold, and Sutter himself was pushed off of his own land by prospectors and squatters. These first prospectors found the gold that was there for the taking, sitting on the surface or in riverbeds. New seekers arrived from the Native American peoples, the Spanish-speaking Californians, Oregon, the Sandwich Islands, now Hawaii, Mexico, and Latin America, more than 6,000 in all. Then, on December 5, 1848, U.S. President James Polk mentioned the discovery of the gold while addressing Congress. The stream of gold hunters became a torrent, and 1849 saw arrivals from around the world. They traveled across the Pacific from China, Australia, and New Zealand. They crossed the sea from revolution-torn Europe, then came by wagon trains along the California Trail. They sailed to the Isthmus of Panama, trekked through the jungle, and then sailed again the rest of the way. Or they took the half-year journey around South America. 90,000 in all, almost all of them men, half by land and half by sea, risking disease and shipwreck. About 60,000 of them Americans, and the rest from around the globe. They came to be known as the 49ers, and they permanently changed the landscape of California. San Francisco exploded overnight into a major port city. Because almost all the prospectors were men, homosexual relationships between them were fairly common. American Indians were ruthlessly killed by the thousands and driven off their land, never to return. There was no real legal authority to adjudicate disputes between the prospectors, so threats and violence settled most disputes. Between the dangers of prospecting, crime, and vigilante justice, one out of every 12 49ers died while searching for gold. The easily accessible gold was gone quickly, so the prospectors became miners as they dug into stream beds and diverted entire rivers to scour the exposed ground for gold. By the 1850s, hydraulic mining was common. Powerful jets of water were directed at gravel beds to loosen the gravel and make it flow over sluices where the gold would settle at the bottom. This method, which resembles modern fracking for extracting natural gas, was used for decades. It resulted in so much silt, gravel, and metals flowing into streams and rivers that most of the pollution remains to this day. So many Americans flooded into California that it was admitted to the Union as a state within two years of the discovery of gold at Sutter's Mill. The California state government used its statehood status to drive out all the non-American immigrants who would come to look for gold and to increase their attacks on the Indians, even passing a law in 1850 that made it legal for white Americans to enslave Native Americans and their children, all so the mining could continue. The 49ers had such a high demand for food, clothes, and goods, they stimulated the entire global economy, and their gold helped finance the Transcontinental Railroad. A few lucky prospectors got rich. Many of them broke even, but the men who made the most money were the merchants who sold the prospectors and miners the supplies they needed to keep up their gold fever. James Marshall died penniless, living in a small shack, and John Sutter lost almost everything, but Levi Strauss made a fortune selling denim overalls in San Francisco. This is where the gold rush left a permanent mark on the American psyche. The California gold seemed miraculous in 1848 because it held out the promise of instant riches at a time where almost all of the world's wealth was in the hands of a tiny number of men and institutions. 
which is of course also the world that we live in now. And it's still true that like in gambling, the house always wins. The true winner of the lottery is always the one selling the tickets. But Americans still constantly dream of instant fortunes, to the point that we blind ourselves to the power of the institutions that know better and get rich themselves by selling us those California dreams. While the gold rush was convulsing California, almost halfway around the world, Karl Marx was in Brussels, putting off his writing assignment. Marx had been commissioned by the League of Communists in Germany to compose a written piece that would clearly explain the ideology of communism to a wide audience. But Marx was procrastinating, preferring to give lectures in Germany, write articles, make speeches, and do some organizing work, rather than buckle down and write. He was also fascinated by the California Gold Rush, as was Marx's friend and collaborator Friedrich Engels. In the gold rushes of California and later Australia, Marx believed that he saw a classic case of the triumph of capital over unorganized labor, as the individual prospectors were bought out, then driven out, by landowners and powerful mining companies. But he also saw how the economies of Europe were boosted by the gold finds thousands of miles away, which seemed like a new development in the unfolding history of society. Finally, Marx was told by the Central Committee of the Communist League that he had until February 1st to produce his manuscript. This deadline gave him the focus he needed to finish his work quickly. He wrote alone, even though his collaborator Engels is credited as a co-writer, Marx drew upon ideas that the two men had often discussed and debated. The Manifest der Kommunistischen Partei, the Communist Manifesto, was published in late February 1848. It was published in German, though the first version came out in the city of London, intended for European emigres living in Britain. It was published anonymously, but nevertheless, a day after the manifesto was serialized in a local German-language paper in London, Marx was expelled from Belgium by the authorities. Soon the manifesto was printed in Polish, Danish, and Swedish. The first translation of the manifesto in English wouldn't appear until 1850. That was also the first edition to include Marx and Engels' names as the authors. Even if you've never read a word of Marx's writings, you live in a world defined by his ideas, like the rest of us, to the point where we mostly take the core ideas of the manifesto for granted. The material conditions that people live and work in define the nature of their existence. People can be grouped into economic classes, and these classes have different interests. Specifically, the class at the top, the bourgeoisie, has an interest in keeping the class at the bottom, the proletariat, in that lower position, by exploiting the labor of that lower class. Human history has played out as a struggle between classes, and as one era's means of production becomes obsolete, a new class emerges to take the reins, not through gradual changes or compromises, but inevitably through revolution. In the modern industrialized world, dominated by the capitalist means of production, we're once again approaching the time of revolution where the exploited laborers of the proletariat will revolt against the exploitation of the bourgeoisie. The rise of the Communist Party itself is a sign of the impending change. But this time, things will be different. Capitalism, unlike previous systems of production that were somewhat limited, is a global system. Marx doesn't mention the California gold rush in the manifesto, but it's a clear example of how economic shifts in one part of the world ripple outwards across the planet. As global capitalism accelerates and intensifies, there's seemingly no way to escape it. 
so that if the modern proletariat tries to revolt against the modern bourgeoisie, all that results is a further perpetuation of the capitalist system, no matter who wins. In Marx's view, the problem lies in the very idea of private property itself. He argues that the only way to truly overthrow the capitalist means of production is to abolish private property entirely, since owning private property allows for the accumulation and concentration of wealth, which in the long run only benefits the bourgeoisie. Therefore, when the modern proletariat eventually revolts against the modern bourgeoisie, they will abolish private property, which will finally be the undoing of capitalism. This in turn means that the end of class distinctions, which means the end of the process of history as we have known it so far. Communism in this sense is a kind of utopian vision of a world beyond classes, and even beyond nations and states. As such, it was of little interest to the European revolutionaries of 1848, who were, for the most part, nationalists. The exception was Germany, where communists based in Köln embraced Marx and his ideas until the revolution failed. Marx was expelled from Germany and spent the rest of his life in London, where he set about researching, writing, and trying to organize the working class. He hoped to speed up the coming revolutionary era, but as usual, he was far ahead of his time. While Europe was in the throes of political and economic upheaval, a spiritual revolution was beginning in the small town of Hydesville, New York, at the home of the Fox family. The locals were convinced that someone had been murdered in the house that the Foxes lived in, and the house was haunted as a result. But the Foxes didn't pay much attention to those rumors, until late March 1848. The family heard strange, unexplained noises throughout the house, like someone moving the furniture or rapping against the walls. Unbeknownst to Mr. and Mrs. Fox, the noises were coming from the two of their three daughters. After 12-year-old Kate and 15-year-old Maggie would go to bed, they would tie an apple to a string and bounce the apple across the floor, producing the rapping sounds, or they would let the apple drop completely, making another type of sound. The noises would echo throughout the house, disturbing their parents, who never suspected that the source was the girl's bedroom. Margaret Fox, their mother, became more frightened each night as it seemed that the house was indeed haunted after all, by a possibly vengeful spirit. The girls decided to use their fear to heighten their game on the night of March 31st. Margaret convinced her neighbor to come and see the strange noises for herself. Sitting in the small bedchamber with Kate, Maggie, and her neighbor, Margaret Fox challenged the supposed spirit to repeat after her. Now count five, she said. Five raps followed. Count fifteen, she said. And there were fifteen raps. She asked it to tell the neighbor's age, and there were thirty-three raps. If you are an injured spirit, Margaret said, manifest it by three raps. Rap, rap rap. Word quickly spread, and several of the Fox family's Hydesville neighbors visited the house to ask the spirit questions, in response to which it would rap out a code signifying yes, no, or letters of the alphabet. It seemed that the house was haunted after all, and now the locals and family not only had proof of the haunting, they could communicate with the spirit, which the girls nicknamed Mr. Splitfoot, another name for the devil. Things began to get chaotic in the Fox household, so the girls were sent to Rochester, New York, Kate to stay with the oldest sister Leah and Leah's husband, while Margaret went to stay with their brother David. But strangely enough, the noises and rappings continued in Leah and David's houses. 
This seemed to imply that Kate and Margaret could attract and communicate with other spirits, not just the one residing in the Hinesville house. And their sister Leah appeared to be able to do it as well. But in truth, the girls had just changed and refined their technique. Kate figured out that she could crack her knuckles and joints to produce loud noises, at the same effect as the apple on the floor. She and Margaret discovered that they could use their toes and feet to produce the sounds, and they practiced until they had perfected their technique. Hidden in the dark, and beneath the girls' large dresses, no one thought to check the sisters' feet as the source of the sounds. This was what the girls' mother had heard on March 31st. At this point, the sisters were invited into the Rochester home of Amy and Isaac Post, a married couple who were old friends of the Fox family. When the Posts heard the ghostly noises, they decided that the sisters were spiritual mediums with the ability to communicate with beings that resided in the afterlife. The Posts also happened to be Hicksite Quakers, a sect of Quakers that were considered radical for their beliefs in equality between men and women of all races, among other things. The Posts brought the Fox sisters into their social and political sphere, and the girls did their seances for an audience of socialist, egalitarian reformers. It was the beginning of spiritualism, which would always be linked with political reformers. About a year later, the Fox sisters gave their first seance performance in front of a paying audience. On November 14, 1849, 400 people came to see the Fox sisters communicate with the afterworld at the Corinthian Hall in Rochester, rented for the occasion by the Posts. Andrew Jackson Davis, also famous for communicating with spirits while in a deep state of trance, believed that the Fox sisters represented the next phase of a growing union between this world and the next. Davis invited the Fox sisters to stay at his home in New York City, where he could witness their abilities for himself, in addition to harnessing their popularity to publicize his own work. With Davis's support, the three Fox sisters booked a hotel suite on Broadway and began to hold seances in the parlor three times a day for up to 30 people at the ticket price of $1 each, sometimes with additional private sessions. Despite a wave of skepticism from the urbane New Yorkers, the leading lights of the city made the trip to the corner of Broadway and Maiden Lane to sit in the dark with the Fox sisters, James Fenimore Cooper, Sojourner Truth, William Lloyd Garrison, William Cullen Bryant, Horace Greeley, and others. Greeley took the young sisters under his wing, acting as a kind of guardian while they were in the city. Then Kate and Maggie decided to take their show on tour, while Leah stayed behind in New York City. The two sisters traveled to Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, St. Louis, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia. It was in Philadelphia that things started to fall apart. An explorer named Elisha Kent Kane attended a Philadelphia show and fell in love with Maggie Fox, who was 13 years younger than him. Kane assumed that the Fox sisters were frauds, but can never figure out how they did it. Maggie, in turn, was smitten with Elisha, and the two of them were married. But he was de determined that Maggie should give up her career as a medium and go to school, so she quit giving seances and forswore spiritualism altogether. After Elisha died suddenly in 1857, Maggie was grief-stricken and started drinking heavily to cope. Kate, meanwhile, had also gotten married to a devout spiritualist. She continued her medium practice, and it seemed her power to communicate with the dead only increased with time. She at least would keep the show going. 
After all, it was clear from both the popularity of spiritualism and its skeptics that the old ways, the ancient truths, were no longer enough, but a new order had not yet established itself. In this unsettled time, with revolution in the air, it made a strange sort of sense that the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead would be thinner than ever, and that thousands of people would hunger to reach out from this living realm of pain and suffering into a realm beyond. Upstate New York in the 18th and 19th centuries was a kind of spiritual primordial soup, the birthplace of not only spiritualism, but also the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Millerism, the precursor to Seventh-day Adventism, the Shakers, and numerous other religions, prophets, reformers, and free thinkers. Yet another religious community was founded in 1848 in Oneida, New York, by a man named John Humphrey Noyes. Noyes was born into a prominent Vermont family. His father was a congressman, and Noyes himself was a cousin of U.S. President Rutherford B. Hayes. In 1831, Noyes went to a revival meeting and had a spiritual awakening. He left Vermont, went to college, and became a minister. But he was obsessed with what God's plan could be for him and the rest of humanity. He devoted so much time to study and prayer that he drove himself to the brink of collapse. Finally, he came to believe that if human beings followed Christ's teaching describing the kingdom of God, they could make that kingdom a reality on earth. In Putney, Vermont, he started to gather a following, preaching his radical beliefs, which we'll get to in a moment. But it was too much for the locals, and he and his community were forced to move west to Oneida, where Noyes founded the community of the Oneida Perfectionists in 1848. Following Christ's teachings about the kingdom of God meant creating a community where everyone was equal, all goods were shared, and everyone's work supported the entire group. So far, noise doesn't sound that different from a Christian version of Marx. But since Christ taught that there would be no marriage in heaven, noise believed that there should be none in his earthly community either. Every man was essentially married to every woman, and vice versa. Whether they be exclusively loving and loyal to one's own spouse or children, each member of the community was part of one large family. The bonds between partners and their children were shared with the group as a whole. The raising of children was also shared among all the men and women equally in the community. Once children were weaned, they would be moved to the children's wing in the south part of the Oneida Community Mansion House. The child's parents could visit, but if they began to show too much attachment, they might be barred from seeing their child temporarily. The system was called complex marriage, and it required that the participants be completely open and honest about their emotions and desires. This led to the institution of what now might be called struggle sessions. Members of the community would meet as a group to mutually criticize each other's conduct in a spirit of openness and sincerity, with the understanding that everyone in the community was striving to become better. These sessions were overseen by Noyes, who also tended to cultivate the complicated web of relationships in the community like a gardener carefully tending his herbs. And when it came to children, Noyes literally did cultivate them. The men in the community practiced a strict form of birth control, which meant unplanned pregnancies in the community were very rare. And it allowed Noyes to carefully choose which couples would be allowed to procreate. 
Noyes came to believe that human qualities could be improved through selective breeding, just like any other form of animal husbandry. A strict program of what the Oneidans called stirpiculture was eventually put in place. Now we would call this eugenics. And as with so much else, the United community was far ahead of its time in enforcing it on its members. A couple who wanted to have children had to appear before a committee to be judged on their moral and spiritual qualities. A new wing was built in the mansion house to house these special children. Fifty-three women and thirty-eight men were allowed to participate, and as a result, fifty-eight children were born, nine of which belonged to John Humphrey Noyes himself. He was obviously fit to pass down his qualities to the next generation, and his presence with his intelligence, charisma, moral authority, and compassion for his followers was in many ways the foundation for the whole community. And the community thrived economically. They produced a variety of high-quality goods, including their famous silverware, and even employed hundreds of locals from the Oneida area. After 30 years at the center of the Oneida community, Noyes decided to relinquish his authority and pass on his leadership role to his son, Theodore. John Humphrey Noyes had achieved his dream of creating a place where heaven existed on earth, and a new generation was poised to carry that dream forward into the boundless future. Someone also concerned with the heavens above, though in a different sense, was the English mathematician and astronomer William Parsons, the third Earl of Rossi. Rossi was specifically interested in nebulas, large masses of diffuse matter floating in space. No one knew exactly what these nebulas were. One popular hypothesis held that the nebulas were composed of gases that, over time, as gravity compressed those gases together, would evolve into stars and planets. Rossi was convinced that this hypothesis was wrong. He had already observed several nebulae through his 36-inch telescope at his home at Beer Castle in Parsontown in central Ireland. In 1844, he sketched out a nebula that on paper resembled a crab, so he nicknamed it the Crab Nebula. Rossi thought diffuse nebulas were not gaseous cradles for stars, but rather giant groupings of small stars that simply couldn't be seen clearly given the limitations of modern telescopes. The obvious solution to this debate, then, was to make a better telescope. Lord Rossi was a wealthy man, and he put his money to work building what was to be the world's largest and most powerful telescope. It would be six feet long, have an aperture of 72 inches, by far the largest at the time. In order to build the gigantic speculum mirror, Rossi had to create new techniques of casting, grinding, and polishing, using steam-powered grinding machines that he also designed himself. It took him six tries to get his mirror ground and polished. He almost abandoned the project after five attempts. The primary mirror was six feet across, five inches thick, and weighed almost three tons. Because it was made of speculum, an alloy of copper and tin, it tarnished quickly and had to be repolished every six months. So a second identical mirror had to be created to replace the one being polished. Because of its size and weight, it was mounted between two massive stone walls for support. After two years of construction, the telescope, now named the Leviathan of Parsontown, was ready for use in 1845. But the onset of the Great Irish Famine meant that Rossi, who was also a local politician, had to focus on his constituents and couldn't use the telescope regularly until a couple of years later. The Leviathan's range was limited. It could only aim at objects near the meridian, the line in the sky from north to south, 
but its sheer power allowed Rossi to peer deeper into space than anyone before him. He was the first to see that some nebulas were shaped like spirals, which we now understand are actually galaxies. This implied that whether they were made of gases or stars, some nebulas were subject to physical forces that shaped them into regular patterns. In 1848, he revisited the Crab Nebula, which he found upon clearer viewing didn't look much like a crab at all, though the name has stuck. And Rossi remained convinced that his stellar hypothesis about nebulas was correct, though the evidence he gathered with the Leviathan was still not convincing to several astronomers. And these were not considered academic debates. The astronomers of 1848 saw themselves as revealers of fundamental truths about the nature of God's creation. 1848 was the year that the director of the Cincinnati Observatory published his book, The Planetary and Stellar Worlds. Quote, If thou would know God's glory, examine the interminable range of suns and systems which crowd the Milky Way. Would you gather some idea of the eternity past of God's existence? Go to the astronomer and bid him lead you with him in one of his walks through space. Would you comprehend the idea of the omniscience of God? He has computed the mutual perturbations of millions of suns and planets and comets and worlds without number. Would you gain some idea of the wisdom of God? Look to the admirable adjustments of the magnificent retinue of planets and satellites which sweep around the sun. While astronomers were making new discoveries in the heavens, on Earth, a revolutionary communications network was spreading across America. Wires carried electronic messages across vast distances, leading to innovations in commerce, transportation, emergency response, and journalism. I'm speaking, of course, of the telegraph network. In 1848, New York City and Chicago were connected by telegraph lines, providing near-instant communication between the East Coast and the Midwest. It also had the potential to allow railroad companies to coordinate their long-distance routes, meaning store owners and large companies could finally coordinate with their suppliers on either end of the line. This promised an economic boom for both cities. The problem was the nature of time. Railroad crews already had discovered that they would set their watches to the proper local time and finish their run only to find that their watches would be several minutes off. As the railroad lines got longer, this problem got worse, and it made connecting lines and coordinating schedules more and more difficult. To solve the problem of railroad time and local time not matching up, Western Union began transmitting time signals across its network. Clocks and watches could be synchronized to this instantaneous pulse that radiated through the wires at regular intervals to make things easier on the human beings involved, the United States was divided up into four zones of time. In each of these time zones, when the sun was at its height, it was noon, whether you were in New York, Chicago, or anywhere else. The telegraph permanently altered our sense of time and space. Three years after New York City and Chicago were linked by telegraph, Nathaniel Hawthorne, in his novel The House of the Seven Gables, wrote, quote, Is it a fact or have I dreamt it, that by means of electricity, the world of matter has become a great nerve, vibrating thousands of miles in a breathless point of time. Moving yet again to upstate New York, 
a group of women were planning yet another revolution in the order of things. Lucretia Mott, the legendary preacher and public speaker, and her sister, Martha Coffin Wright, met with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Mary Ann McClintock, and Jane Hunt at Hunt's home in Waterloo, New York, on July 9, 1848. The women were Quakers, except for Stanton, who all believed in abolition and equality. They were all part of a community of reformers connected by various ties of kinship and friendship whose activism against social injustice went back decades. But for all their hard work and sacrifice towards the cause of ending slavery, these women often found that their efforts to expand women's rights, especially the right to vote, went ignored or was actively discouraged by their male colleagues. When the women met for tea on July 9th, Stanton raged about this, as well as the fact that more generally, women were treated as second-class citizens in American society. In most states, women could not legally inherit property, sign contracts, serve on juries, or vote in elections. Women's lives and choices were usually constrained by the will of their husbands and fathers. Economic independence was out of the question, since most women could not get jobs. Even if they did, they would be paid a fraction of what the men earned. Mott, Wright, Stanton, McClintock, and Hunt decided to hold what would be the first women's rights convention at the Wesleyan Methodist Chapel in Seneca Falls, New York, on July 19th. The convention was announced, and the planning began. The original five, plus May Ann McClintock's two eldest daughters, worked out a declaration based on the Declaration of Independence, called the Declaration of Sentiments. They called for women to have equality with men in education, employment, civil rights, and property ownership. Stanton edited the declaration and added in a call for women to be allowed to vote, which at the time was the most radical element of the document. Quote, In entering upon the great work before us, they wrote, we anticipate no small amount of misconception, misrepresentation, and ridicule, but we shall use every instrumentality within our power to effect our object. We shall employ agents, circulate tracts, petition the state and national legislatures, and endeavor to enlist the pulpit and the press in our behalf. We hope this convention will be followed by a series of conventions, embracing every part of the country." Unquote. The convention was set to open at 11 o'clock on July 19th. When the organizers arrived around 10, and once they managed to get the church doors unlocked, they found that despite the announcement requesting that men not attend, there were 40 men who had showed up anyway. Rather than turn them away, the committee asked that they remain silent, which they did. The first day was taken up with debating the various elements of the Declaration of Sentiments. In the evening, Lucretia Mott gave a stirring speech on the progress of humanity towards peace, freedom from slavery, temperance, and justice, with women's rights being the next step in this march towards the future. She finished by exhorting the men present to join with the women in their efforts to secure this better future. The next day, the church was packed. The Declaration of Sentiments was read to the crowd, and after some discussion, it was put forth for signatures. Of the 300 men and women present that day, 68 women and 32 men put their name to the Declaration, 100 in all. That afternoon, the resolutions in the Declaration were voted on individually. The only one that provoked disagreement was the resolution that, quote, it is the duty of the women of this country to secure to themselves their sacred right to the elective franchise. Some women felt that focusing on so radical an issue as women's right to vote would overshadow all the other rights they were fighting for. Lucretia Mott herself was opposed to it, telling Stanton 
that it would make them look ridiculous. Stanton vigorously defended women's suffrage, saying that political power would be necessary to secure many of the rights they wanted. But it seemed like the resolution would fail, until the only African American at the meeting, Frederick Douglass, rose to speak on its behalf. In this denial of the right to participate in government, he said, quote, not merely the degradation of women and the perpetuation of a great injustice happens, but the maiming and repudiation of one half of the moral and intellectual power of the government of the world, unquote. He couldn't accept the vote for himself as a free colored man if women did not have that right as well. Moved by Douglas's powerful rhetoric, the suffrage resolution passed by a large majority. The conference came to a close with the final session that evening. Lucretia Mott offered a resolution that, quote, the speedy success of our cause depends upon the zealous and untiring efforts of both men and women for the overthrow of the monopoly of the pulpit and for the securing to women an equal participation with men in the various trades, professions, and commerce. This resolution passed easily. Frederick Douglass spoke once again in support of women's rights, and Lucretia Mott gave an almost hour-long oration imploring the women present to take action and be true to themselves and to God in their fight. And with that, the first Women's Rights Convention was over. Frederick Douglass spoke at another convention in 1848, the National Convention of Colored Freemen, a three-day conference held in Cleveland on September 6th, 7th, and 8th. Between 50 and 70 African-American freemen gathered to discuss and debate various questions, such as whether or not to endorse Martin Van Buren and the Free Soil Party in the upcoming presidential election. Eventually they did, after much criticism of both the Whigs and the Democrats. Along with the legendary Frederick Douglass, William Howard Day, the great writer and activist from Ohio, was in attendance, as was John Malvin, a leading light of, the, of Cleveland's free black community. Many of the attendees were successful businessmen, so one of the main issues debated was what kinds of work should be considered honorable. Menial work, it was decided, can simply not be considered altogether respectable. The Cleveland Convention was part of the larger convention movement that had started in 1830, where African-American politicians, religious figures, businessmen, writers, publishers, and others would meet to debate and organize. The main issue was, of course, how to free those who were enslaved. They also discussed education, health care, the temperance movement, and the political questions of the moment. The Cleveland Convention was unusual in that the conventions were normally held in the northeastern states, which allowed escaped slaves living in Canada to more easily attend. But what truly set the 1848 Cleveland Convention apart was the role played by black women. At first, the women present were not allowed to participate at all. But this seemed to contradict the rule which stated that all free persons of color who attended the convention were accepted as members and could thus participate. Finally, it was decided that the term persons did indeed include women, and thus they had the right to participate fully in the proceedings. It was the first of the national conventions to do so. Despite this small victory, however, it was a sign that African-American women were not generally seen as equal with men in the struggle for freedom and equality. It remained to be seen if free men and women could make common cause against slavery and injustice. But it was 1848, change was in the air, and it was possible to hope for better things to come soon. Away, haul away, haul away, my rosy, 
On August 6th, a naval British warship, a modified frigate named the HMS Daedalus, was sailing around the island off of St. Helena. It had passed the Cape of Good Hope and was in open ocean when midshipman Sartorus saw something strange in the water, swimming towards them and approaching fast. He alerted Captain Peter McEwey, who, along with some other officers and sailors, saw an incredible sight. In his official report to the British Admiralty, he wrote, quote, It was discovered to be an enormous serpent, with head and shoulders kept about four feet constantly above the surface of the sea. And as nearly as we could approximate, there was at the very least sixty feet of the animal, no portion of which was, to our perception, used in propelling it through the water, either by vertical or horizontal undulation. It passed rapidly, but so close under our lee quarter that had it been a man of my acquaintance, I should have easily recognized the features with the naked eye. Unquote. According to one officer, it appeared more like a lizard than a snake. The crew watched it for about 20 minutes before it moved out of sight. The captain and his crew recorded their observations and their official report and dutifully submitted it to the Royal Navy, where they probably expected it to take its place among the numerous other reports of sea monsters filed by sailors over the years, possibly subject to some scrutiny as was only proper. But the climate in Britain had changed from those old days, and the Daedalus's captain and crew found themselves ridiculed and their careers in jeopardy. Though the public was captivated by the Daedalus's report, the Admiralty was unimpressed and somewhat embarrassed. There had been over 30 years of peace in Europe, presided over by the British Empire, where the watchwords were science, technology, and industry. The Royal Navy did its part by embarking on a new age of discovery, sending scientific expeditions around the world, including the second voyage of the HMS Beagle only a few years earlier, the voyage that first made Charles Darwin well-known as a naturalist and author. But along with this new embrace of science came a wave of fakes and frauds, especially in the new field of paleontology. Clever conmen were able to cobble together fossils from various animals and pass them off as exciting new discoveries, at least for a while, and in some cases for many years. So along with the embrace of science came a demand for reliable accounts, usually from multiple respectable eyewitnesses and a dose of skepticism. There was no room for Captain McEwey's sea serpent in the new British Royal Navy, even if an American ship spotted a similar creature in exactly the same area later in 1848. Instead, other explanations were offered. The great biologist Richard Owen declared that the sailors must have seen an elephant seal, though the experienced sailors aboard the HMS Daedalus could have easily recognized an elephant seal if that's what it had been. Captain McEwey was so humiliated by Richard Owen's dismissal of his statement that he commissioned a series of engravings depicting the sea serpent. These illustrations were published in the Illustrated London News, along with McEwey's official report. The pictures, coupled with the report, gripped the general public's consciousness, perhaps because the last vestiges of mystery and the unknown seemed to be fading from the world. And here was at least some proof that there were still unexplored depths and unexplained creatures waiting to be found. And the growing fossil record was already demonstrating that in years to come it would ironically be science itself that would provide modern society with a sense of wonder. At the same moment that the crew of the HMS Daedalus saw their sea serpent, Charles Darwin was hard at work, studying barnacles, slowly formulating what would eventually become the theory of evolution.
1848 was a year of mystery and wonder, and one of the strangest occurrences was the so-called American Crowbar case concerning a man named Phineas Gage. On September 13, 1848, Gage was working as a blasting foreman for the Rutland and Burlington Railroad. He was overseeing a group of workers that were blasting rock just south of Cavendish, Vermont, to prepare the roadbed for the railway. The men would bore a deep hole into a section of rock, then add some blasting powder and a fuse. Finally, they would use a pointed metal cylinder called a tamping iron, three feet seven inches long, thirteen and a quarter pounds, one and a quarter inches across, to pack clay or sand down into the hole above the powder. At 4.30 p.m., Phineas was about to tamp some sand down into a blast hole when he was distracted by some men working behind him. As he looked over his right shoulder, his head lined up directly with the blast hole. Phineas opened his mouth to say something. At that moment, his tamping iron struck the rock below him, which set off a spark. This instantly ignited the blasting powder and sent the tamping iron shooting upwards directly through Phineas's head. The tamping iron pierced the left side of his face, just in front of his jaw, went through his cheekbone, passed behind his left eye, went through the left side of his brain, and shot through the top of Phineas's skull, to land 80 feet away, covered in blood and bits of his brain. But not only was Phineas still alive, after a few minutes, he was up and walking, with a little help, and sat up for the ox cart ride to the hotel where he was staying a three-quarter mile away. When the doctor arrived, Phineas was sitting outside in a chair waiting for him. He said, Doctor, here is business enough for you, which is Dr. Edward Williams called one of the great understatements of medical history. Williams carefully examined Phineas's head and listened to Phineas explain what had happened, which Williams at first refused to believe. Williams said later that as he spoke, quote, Mr. Gage got up and vomited. The effort of vomiting pressed out about half a teacup full of the brain, which fell upon the floor, unquote. Another doctor, John Martin Harlow, soon arrived to assist. Harlow noted that Phineas, quote, recognized me at once and said he hoped he was not much hurt. He seemed to be perfectly conscious, but was getting exhausted from the hemorrhage. His person and the bed on which he laid were literally one gore of blood, unquote. Williams and Harlow cleaned and dressed Phineas's wounds as best they could, and when they left him that evening, he told them not to bother calling on his friends as he would be back to work in a few days. But that didn't happen. Phineas instead spent about a month recuperating, coming in and out of consciousness, with his friends and loved ones expecting him to expire at any moment. But luckily for Phineas, Dr. Harlow had some experience with brain injuries and the fluid that sometimes built up as a result. Harlow performed some precise incisions that drained Phineas's fluid, which probably saved his life. His physical condition slowly improved, though his mental state had obviously changed. He seemed as intelligent as before the accident, as well as his memory, but before the accident, Phineas was known as a dependable worker and an excellent supervisor, popular with the men who worked with him and relied upon by the railway companies who employed him. The accident seemed to have lowered his ability to control his basic impulses. Dr. Harlow observed that, quote, he is fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity, which was not previously his custom, manifesting but little deference for his fellows, impatient of restraint or advice when it conflicts with his desires, at times pertinaciously obstinate, yet capricious and vacillating, 
His mind was radically changed, so decidedly that his friends and acquaintances said he was, quote, no longer Gage, unquote. Harlow was a believer in phrenology, and so thought that various elements of human behavior and personality could be located in specific regions of the brain. If those were damaged, a person's entire self could be altered. Which raised a disturbing question. Was a human being's individual sense of being not related to an immortal soul or a metaphysical mind, but simply the result of an arrangement of brain cells? Ten weeks after his injury, Phineas was still weak, but strong enough to return to his parents' farm in Lebanon, New Hampshire. Three months after that, he was well enough to do chores around the farm, and a few months later he was helping to plow the fields. By September 1849, a year after his accident, Phineas Gage seemed to be mostly recovered from what should have been instant death. He kept the tamping iron that almost ended his life with him at all times. A month later, Henry Jacob Bigelow, the professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School, invited Phineas to come to Boston to speak to some doctors and medical students about his case. His original personality had slowly returned, which suggested that the personality changes brought on by the accident were only temporary, which in turn invited still more questions about the relation between the brain and the self, as well as the capacity for the brain to heal itself from injury. Dr. Bigelow was opposed to the phrenology that Dr. Harlow subscribed to. He took a more holistic view of the brain, and thought that Harlow had greatly exaggerated the extent of Phineas's mental changes. Since Phineas couldn't return to work for the railroads, he toured through New England making public appearances, where he told his story to fascinated crowds and showed them his tamping iron, now inscribed with his name and the date of the accident. He continued to look for a regular job, and in August 1852 found work as a long-distance stagecoach driver in Chile on a rope between Valparaiso and Santiago. It was a 13-hour trip each way over bad roads, with the occasional bandit or revolutionary waiting to pounce, not to mention having to avoid other vehicles, traveling at various speeds. And Phineas was also expected to keep up a lively conversation with his passengers to help them pass the time. This kind of work, a regular series of tasks in a structured environment with the need to plan and think ahead, is similar to regiments used today to help those with frontal lobe brain injuries recover. On his own, Phineas had found a way to work around his injury and make a respectable living in a way that also helped his brain heal itself. In the middle of 1859, though, Phineas fell ill and returned to the U.S., convalescing with his mother and sister in San Francisco. He managed to get another job as a farmer in Santa Clara, but in February of 1860, he began to have epileptic seizures. They continued to get worse, and on May 18th, he went into convulsions, which he never came out of. He died in San Francisco on May 21st, 1860. His family gave his skull and his beloved tamping iron to Dr. Harlow, who deposited them both at an anatomical museum at Harvard Medical School, where they remain to this day. For all the contention between the material world and the metaphysical world in 1848, those two spheres were coming together at the address of 280 Broadway in New York City. That was the location of the Marble Palace, otherwise known as the A.T. Stewart Dry Goods Store. It was the first department store in New York, and at the time, the largest retail store in the world. It was owned by Alexander Turney Stewart, an enterprising Irishman 
who would eventually become one of the richest men in the history of the world. He was definitely a shrewd businessman, but he also took a different approach towards his customers than his competitors did. As he put it, quote, You must never actually cheat the customer, even if you can. You must make her happy and satisfied, so she will come back, unquote. Stewart's great innovation was the idea of customer service. The department store itself was still a new concept in retail sales. As opposed to the single-item shops of old, department stores sold a large variety of goods. And these goods changed with the fashions. The style of purchasing was tailored to the growing urban upper and middle classes, or as Marx put it in his manifesto from earlier in the year, the bourgeoisie. But also take note that Stewart refers to the customer as her. Stewart made the marble palace a space designed to please bourgeois women, both in the helpful service and the wide selection, especially of the latest fashions imported from Europe. The women came to the palace to engage in that new cultural activity called going shopping. Shopping was a social activity, a way to display one's wealth and social station. But deeper than that, it was an act of consumption that connected desire, aesthetics, personal taste, class, and thrift. Simultaneously ephemeral, almost frivolous, yet deeply satisfying. The economic liberations promised by the gold rush and the Communist Manifesto seemed, at the time, promised to men while the political freedom held up by the Senegal Falls Convention was dangerous, chaotic, even frightening in its rebellion against the established order of things. Perhaps consumerism looked to middle-class women like their form of economic liberation in 1848, a way to exercise the power of choice and even achieve personal happiness while remaining nestled into a restrictive but traditional social order. But this kept true power in the hands of men. Like the Fox sisters' staged version of the afterlife, the freedoms promised by consumerism were an illusion, a product of stagecraft and a yearning to believe in the possibility of the supernatural. Ellen and William Kraft were married in 1846 in Macon, Georgia. She was a house servant to the wife of a local doctor, and William was an apprentice carpenter. They were deeply in love and couldn't wait to begin their future lives together. But they had a problem. Both of them were born into slavery. They had each seen their own families torn apart by various slave owners, and they couldn't bear the thought that the same thing would happen to them or their children. So they decided that they had to escape their owners. William began to devise an audacious plan. Ellen was light-skinned enough that she could easily pass for white, which meant that she could pretend to be a slave owner and William could pretend to be her slave. Since slave owners could take their slaves with them to any free or slave state, the two of them could travel north together to freedom, hiding in plain sight. To pull it off, however, Ellen would have to pretend to be a male slave owner. A woman slave owner would have been traveling with a female slave. She practiced her stance and her gestures to make them more masculine. William cut her hair to neck length. Ellen sewed herself a pair of men's trousers to wear on their journey. William managed to get enough money to buy the rest of the costume. A top hat, a pair of green spectacles, a cravat, a jacket, a tartan, and a tassel. All signifiers of her status as a slave owner. The couple decided that Ellen should also pretend to be an invalid 
A sling on her right arm meant that she wouldn't be expected to write or sign anything. Neither she nor William could read or write, since teaching them either was forbidden by law in Georgia. And Ellen's face would be partially wrapped in bandages, to hide her smooth skin and to give her an excuse to not speak. Finally, they asked their owners for temporary passes for a few days' leave at Christmas time, supposedly to visit their families. Both Ellen and William had good reputations, so they were granted the leave, and their owners didn't suspect a thing. On December 21st, 1848, Ellen donned her disguise. They knelt for a moment of prayer and set out on what they later called a desperate leap for liberty. At the train station in Macon, Georgia, Ellen, calling herself Mr. William Johnson, purchased tickets to Savannah, which was 200 miles away. William took his place in the train car for Negroes. Suddenly, he spotted the owner of the cabinet-making shop where he worked, standing on the platform. The man spoke to the ticket seller and then walked along the train peering through the windows of the cars. William turned away from the window and shrank down in his seat, wondering if their desperate leap was about to be cut short. The man walked by the car Ellen was in, but paid her no attention. And just as he was about to examine William's car, the bell sounded and the train lurched off. Ellen had been staring out the window. She turned in her seat to find that the man sitting next to her was a close friend of her owner. He had recently been to her owner's house for dinner, where Ellen would have served him. Indeed, he had known Ellen for years. Ellen, who had always been dubious of William's plan, assumed this man had been sent to take her back. The man looked at her and then spoke, saying, It is a very fine morning, sir. She relaxed a bit and pretended to be deaf for the next several hours so she wouldn't have to talk to him. But whenever William was separated from her, she would worry that other slavers had kidnapped him, something not uncommon in the South given how valuable slaves were. Once they reached Savannah, Ellen and William boarded a steamboat bound for Charleston, South Carolina. The next morning at breakfast, the genial captain of the steamboat admired how attentive Ellen's boy was, and he warned her to look out for abolitionists in the North. They were cutthroats. They would try to get her slave to run away. Ellen also got an offer from a slave trader on the ship to buy William from her. The only harsh word came from a military officer who overheard Ellen say thank you to William. The officer scolded her for being too friendly with her slave. She had to constantly beg off from partaking in brandy and cigars with the other gentlemen travelers. When the couple arrived in Charleston, they went to the best hotel in town. The staff, believing that Ellen was an ailing traveler, gave her the best service they could. They then went to the depot to buy tickets for a train from South Carolina to Wilmington, North Carolina, to Richmond, Virginia, to Washington, D.C., and then to Baltimore, Maryland, where they would catch a train to Philadelphia and freedom. In Wilmington, the ticket seller saw Ellen's injured arm, but insisted that he, the seller, could not sign the necessary documents on their behalf. There were too many abolitionists sneaking slaves out of the South, so she would have to prove that William was her property. The ticket seller got annoyed and jammed his hands in his pockets to show that he refused to sign the papers. William and Ellen had come as far as they would go and would eventually be unmasked and horribly punished. But just then, the friendly captain from the Charleston steamboat happened to walk by. He happily vouched for the young slave owner and signed their names for them. At the station in Richmond, Virginia, a woman saw William and became convinced that he was her runaway slave. 
she demanded that William come with him. But finally, she gave up when she couldn't prove that William belonged to her. When the craft's train arrived in Baltimore, they were stopped again by guards determined to prevent any slaves from escaping across the border. Ellen and William were asked to leave the train and report to the authorities. A border patrol officer looked them over, asked them some questions, and finally declared, We shan't let you go. The jig was finally up. William felt like he was drowning, thinking about being returned to slavery. He and Ellen prayed silently as they waited with the border guard in awkward silence. Suddenly, a bell rang out. The train was departing. The officer shifted nervously and scratched his head, looking thoughtfully at Ellen's bandages. He's not well, he said to a nearby clerk. It is a pity to stop him. Let this gentleman and slave pass. While they were on the train to Philadelphia, a free black man approached William and urged him to stay at a boarding house in the city run by abolitionists. William and Ellen yearned to tell him the truth, but had to keep up their charade until they were safe. The next morning, Ellen and William's train finally arrived in Philadelphia. It was Christmas Day. They walked out of the station, and Ellen burst into tears. Thank God, William, she cried out. We are safe. The gold rushes of the 1840s inspired Karl Marx to spend countless hours at the British Museum studying political economy, eventually producing his masterwork, the first volume of Das Kapital, published in 1894. The Communist Manifesto would go mostly unread for over 20 years before it and Marx came back into vogue. The German edition of 1872 became the new standard version that went on to influence the world. Kate Fox's seance business boomed during and after the U.S. Civil War as thousands of bereaved families yearned to speak again with their fallen sons, husbands, and fathers. By the 1880s, spiritualism had attracted numerous followers in the U.S. and Europe. But the world had changed. These new spiritualists were not interested in political reform or a dawning new age. They wanted to be shocked, entertained, and awed. Kate's sessions became more like stage productions. Kate was burning out, and she started drinking heavily like her sister Maggie had years before. Kate's sister Leah publicly scolded Kate for her drinking and said she was no longer fit to care for her children. This infuriated Maggie, who decided to give a public expose of the tricks the sisters had used in their seances early on. On October 21st, 1888, the New York World published an interview with Maggie Fox where she explained all the tricks. The apple on a string, the cracked knuckles, joints and toes. Most of the deception involved the attendees fooling themselves into believing that the spirit communication was real. Leah Fox, she said, had always known it was fake and that exploited her two younger sisters for the money. Later that night, she appeared at the New York Academy of Music where she gave a demonstration of her technique and finished by thanking God that she had been given the chance to denounce spiritualism. But one year later, Maggie recanted her confession of fraud. She said that her spirit guides had begged her to, but it was too late. The Fox sisters were commonly understood to be curiosities at best, con artists at worst, rejected by those who had followed them. All three sisters died broke and were buried in pauper's graves in Brooklyn, New York, Leah in 1890, Kate in 1892, and Maggie in 1893. John Humphrey Noyes' attempt to pass on leadership of the United Community to his son, Theodore, led to disaster. One of the community's members, a man named John Towers, tried to seize control for himself. Theodore Noyes 
lacked John Humphrey Noyes' charisma and ability, so the first serious rift split the community, and the system of complex marriage began to fall apart without Noyes to maintain it. Then a professor from nearby Hamilton College led a crusade against the Oneida community. A warrant for Noyes' arrest was issued, but he was warned ahead of time. He fled north to Canada in June 1879 and never returned to the U.S. He passed away seven years later. The community gave up complex marriage and eventually dissolved altogether, only existing as a silverware company, Oneida Community Limited. The last original member of the Oneida community died in 1950, not far from the site of the original community. Lord Rossi was wrong about nebulae. They are indeed made of gases and are the birthplace of stars. But the spiral galaxies he discovered were the very star clusters he thought that nebulas were. After Rossi died in 1867, his son continued to operate the Leviathan, and other astronomers worked with it as well. When the fourth Earl of Rossi passed away, the Leviathan fell into disuse. Smaller and better-mounted telescopes were able to make longer exposures, and the images they captured were simply better than anything the Leviathan could produce. When the First World War broke out in 1914, nearly all of the iron castings and any other metal were melted down to contribute to the war effort. Anything that was left was either burned as firewood or converted for some other purpose. The Leviathan was completely disassembled in 1914, with one of the mirrors going to the Science Museum in London. Western Union continued to send out their time signals across their telegraph network for over a hundred years, until the company dissolved in 1970. Only one woman who attended the Seneca Falls Convention was still alive at the age of 91, when women in the U.S. finally gained the right to vote in 1920 with the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. But she was too ill to go to the polls. The Negro Convention movement grew in popularity and sustained itself well past the Civil War. Eventually the conventions died out, as they were replaced with more permanent institutions that grew out of the Niagara movement in the early 20th century. African American women continued to be pushed to the margins of the freedom struggle and were mostly excluded from the women's suffrage movement. They formed their own institutions starting in the 1890s. Despite the 19th Amendment, black women in some states in the southern U.S. couldn't freely exercise their right to vote until the mid-1960s. The HMS Daedalus was refit as a training ship in 1851 and spent several years as a drill ship at Bristol as part of the Royal Naval Reserve. She was finally retired in 1910, sold off, and dismantled for parts in 1911. Captain McHughey's reputation never recovered among the British Admiralty, though he had several public defenders for many years. In their eyes, McHughey and his crew were finally vindicated in October 1873, when a Canadian fisherman named Theophilus Peacoat was attacked by what seemed to be a giant tentacled sea creature off the coast of Newfoundland. He returned to shore with a tentacle that he had managed to chop off of the monster. It would have been yet another sea serpent story, except this time the tentacle was examined by various scientists, who were forced to admit that the creature was indeed real, and was in fact confirmation of the existence of the giant squid. The case of Phineas Gage became one of the most misunderstood in the annals of American medicine. The extent of Phineas's personality changes after his accident were grossly exaggerated in the medical literature in order to argue the point to medical students that the frontal lobes and individual personalities are closely related. And the general public was fascinated by the idea that who we think we are comes down to a few square inches of neurons. But the exact extent of Phineas's brain damage is not clear. 
and the accounts of his behavior became wildly distorted over time. So that the main lesson contemporary doctors take away from Phineas's case is an example of how a small group of scientific facts can become distorted into myths of popular culture. You could thank Phineas Gage for all the television episodes and movies where a character is hit on the head and loses their memory, or their personality alters. The relationship between consciousness and the brain is still poorly understood and the subject of intense debate among scientists and philosophers. The Marble Palace and other department stores like it led to an ethic of consumption over production, consumerism for short, which continues to shape every aspect of American life. Department stores would grow in popularity until there was at least one in every city, and then at least one in every mall, accounting for trillions of dollars in sales and thousands of jobs. Then, in the early 21st century, the department store industry started to slowly die out. Retailers who sold their goods online didn't have to pay for sales staff or high-traffic retail space, which meant they could sell their goods at prices far below those of the traditional department stores. Those stores which did remain open found themselves competing against large warehouse stores, which also sold cheaper goods. There are still thousands of department stores in the United States, but there are less every year, and the decline is accelerating. Ellen and William Kraft quickly became legendary for their daring escape. Local abolitionists in Philadelphia took them in, gave them financial assistance, and helped them learn to read and write. Three weeks later, they moved further north to the Beacon Hill neighborhood in Boston, Massachusetts, where William took up his carpentry work and Ellen became a seamstress. They also appeared in public several times and told their story to hundreds of people. The public was especially fascinated with Ellen and the idea that a young woman could be so cunning and fearless. Their popularity enraged the slave-owning class of the South. When Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, Ellen's former owner dispatched two bounty hunters to Boston to recapture the crafts. But the local Bostonians made life difficult for the two men, while moving the couple between various safe houses in the area. Eventually, the two men gave up. The frustrated slave owner finally appealed directly to Millard Fillmore, the President of the United States. Fillmore, of course, agreed that the crafts should be re-enslaved by military force if necessary. The crafts were forced to move to Liverpool, England. They spent 19 years there, had five children, were active in local politics, and continued to speak about their exploits and against slavery. They returned to the U.S. in 1870 with three of their children to set up a cooperative farm school near Savannah, Georgia, to educate and employ freed slaves. But when Reconstruction failed and white supremacy finally triumphed in the South, the Crafts had to abandon their school. They moved to Charleston, South Carolina in 1890, where Ellen passed away a year later, and William followed in January 1900. 1848 was a year of uncertainty, ambiguity, and hope. An old order was crumbling, but still cast a long shadow, while the new order was stirring, but was not yet fully formed. In such a strange time, the border between the material world and the spiritual world was thin. Reality and imagination were tangled together. But sometimes the chaos made it possible to see new ways for us to exist with each other and live in the world. And all these years later, we're still looking and trying.